The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hello, welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan. We've had so many speakers talk about chronic diseases. At least half of us have these diseases and we're watching our health get worse and we feel worried. So one of the components of these chronic diseases is autoimmunity. And we've had several speakers discuss this. Last week, Anthony Haynes discussed the role of infections. And today we're going to touch upon the role of food sensitivities in this area. But How do we know if we've got a food sensitivity? I mean, some of us just eat, 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 and our stomach's not giving us a clue, but yet we might be on this dreadful path toward a chronic disease. So to answer some of these questions today, we have Roger Deutsch, who has a method for testing what foods we might be sensitive to, which gives us another piece of this puzzle in the path toward wellness. Roger Deutsch is the CEO and founder of Cell Science Systems and Prev Medica a nutrition consulting firm. He's also the CEO of Cell Science Systems in Potsdam, Germany. He is a pioneer in the food and chemical sensitivity testing. He's been involved in this area since 1986, long before many of us thought about functional medicine. Cell Cell Science Systems is a special clinical laboratory that develops and performs laboratory testing in immunology, cell biology, molecular diagnosis, and this supports the personalized treatment and prevention of chronic diseases. Under Roger's guidance, Cell Science System has been pioneering a chemical sensitivity test called the ALCAP, which has been provided to more than a half million patients globally. He's also the co-author of a book, Your Hidden Food Allergies Are Making You Fat, and he's got into this as, as he was a lifelong sufferer of allergies. So he's really motivated to see what he could do about this and how does he make a difference in other sufferers of allergies and chronic diseases. So welcome, Roger. Welcome to the Good. show. Thank you very much, Dr. Susan. So we're going to, I mean, I know you've got a test to test for food sensitivities, but let's go a little bit into what food sensitivities are and why they're important. So what is food sensitivity, and how did you become interested in this area? Okay. So the second question first, if that's all right. Um, I grew up in the northeast of the U.S., and um, during the late summer and fall seasons, there was uh, a lot of ragweed pollen. And um, uh, back in those days, it was before people really understood um, how to treat that. And um, 
or to understand it. Um, so I, I went for allergy therapy, allergy shots every week for about a year, and I didn't improve at all. And my condition was so debilitating that I, you know, I decided that I would try and um, figure it out on my own. Um, so I went off to various places. I went to England and, and, and studied oriental medicine. I, I went to India. I studied yoga and meditation. I, I thought maybe I could you know, de-stress my body, detoxify my body, and the allergies would go away. And ultimately, in the course of all that, I found that the most dramatic improvement came to me by changing my diet. And that was about 45 years ago. Now, uh, if you fast forward a little bit, I got involved in in other activities, and I had a successful um, business in uh, an entirely different industry. And after selling that, I I looked around for what to do next, and I came across some people in South Florida who were working with a professor of uh, pediatric gastroenterology on a blood test for sensitivities or adverse reactions to foods and chemicals. And they were looking for someone with a business background who could commercialize this test. So um, as it turned out, I was living in Southern California. I came over with my wife and my eight-month-old son to to Florida to check this out. And um, my son at that point uh, had a rash all over his body. And this was pretty strange because Jason had been born at home um, via natural childbirth, and he was uh, breastfed um, in his early life for, for quite a long time. And then um, put on to only organic um, foods that were vegetarian, because my wife and I were both vegetarian. And um, he was the healthiest kid you'd ever see. People would stop and remark about how, how energetic he looked. And all of a sudden, he had this rash that came out of nowhere. So when we got to this laboratory, a very small laboratory at that time, um, we decided to run the test on him, and we came up with one particular food that he'd been, he'd been eating, and we took that away, and then that cleared up. So that got me interested in, in believing that this approach was um, something that could be a, a, a viable and attractive um, project for me going forward. So I got involved, and I started a company to commercialize this um, this. Um, blood test, and that was in 1986. That was the beginning of it. Um, what did I leave out? Well, that's certainly an interesting, uh, very interesting path. You, you finding out how to cure yourself, and you're helping cure many others, including your son. So, but tell us, what is a food allergy? How does it come about? What is it? Well, okay, now you just said food allergy, which is kind of interesting, and that might have been a, an unintentional slip. Or any kind of sensitivity, uh, like to uh, ragweed, etc. What are these allergies all about? What are allergies or what are sensitivities or, or both? Well, what's, why don't you tell us the difference between an allergy and a sensitivity? Okay. So, another long answer. Allergy is a term that came about in 1906, proposed by an Austrian physician named von Perke to denote an altered reaction. Um, then there was some debate during the 20s and 30s as to what, would care, what, what, what are we going to apply this term to with respect to adverse reactions to foods. And make a long story short, they decided to 
reserved the term allergy only to denote an altered reaction that was characterized by immediate symptom onset that was acute. And today we would, we would um, apply the word allergy when someone has a very strong and, or anaphylactic reaction to peanuts or, or shrimp or some other crustacean or immediately breaks out in hives. That's an allergy. In 1969, it was identified what the trigger for allergy was, and it was an antibody or immunoglobulin E, and the pathway was delineated. Now, a food sensitivity differs from a food allergy in that the symptom onset is non-immediate following exposure, can be delayed actually by several hours or even more than 24 hours. And the symptoms are typically not acute, they're more low-grade, and they're more chronic. So um, to give you an example, symptoms that are associated with adverse reactions to foods that are not allergy, but sensitivities, um, include things like metabolic syndrome, include things like um, irritable bowel syndrome, um, skin rashes, arthritis, autoimmune diseases, which you alluded to in the opening, um, respiratory disorders, and even central nervous system disorders. Um, So any part of the body can be affected by a food sensitivity. And one of the practical considerations when you look at this is that not being acute, not being um, immediate after the exposure to the food, many people have sensitivities to foods they eat every day and they don't realize it because the symptoms are there all the time. The joint pain, the inability to lose the weight, the irritation, the gut, so forth. So that's where our test comes into play, is trying to identify those foods and and chemicals and things we come in contact with that um, trigger those delayed type, non-allergic or not classically allergic, non-IgE-mediated adverse reactions. So these are IgG reactions that are slower over time, whereas the IgE, which would be an allergy, an immediate reaction, which might even require an EpiPen, like some kids are allergic to fish or peanuts, etc. So that's the difference between a food sensitivity and food allergy. I'm I'm glad you asked that or stated that because the answer is no. Um, the, The difference in symptom onset is correct. But the involvement of IgG antibody as opposed to IgE is actually not correct. It's a common misunderstanding that people believe that IgG antibodies are involved in delayed type uh, food sensitivities. Wow. What about all those people out there that are testing for the IgG for um, food sensitivities? So do they have any validity or are they just, uh, you know, on the wrong track? No, not much. It, it's confusing. A fellow named Robert Dockhorn in, in, in the 70s floated the idea that um, IgG antibodies could, could be involved in, in, in food sensitivities. So it, when it was investigated scientifically, it was found actually not to be the case, but there was confusion about it for several years. In fact, even 3M Diagnostics acquired a California-based company for a large sum of money, uh, doing an allergen-specific IgG4 test 
The test was called the FAST or the fluorescein allergosorbin test. And um, I, I know about this because they invited me over to, to discuss a joint venture back around 1987 or so. And um, they, they went to the market with it, but then they gave it to um, um, people at Georgetown University and their own, um, and their own science staff to, to actually validate it. And the only way to validate a test for something like this or food sensitivity or, or anything is to compare it to a known standard. And the only known and accepted standard for food sensitivity is that actual um, eating challenge or feeding challenge. And that should be carried out under double-blind conditions so that there's uh, no possibility of uh, expectations or suggestion playing a, a role there. And when they did these correlations with IgG4 testing and and double-blinded oral challenges to foods, they found out that the correlation wasn't there. It came out at about 38%. Um, So, yeah, they they withdrew from the market, um, but yet a lot of independent and smaller laboratories that had started with it continued. And, And it's not to say that people don't get any results whatsoever, but a lot of the results from IgG comes from either A, a placebo effect, or B, indirectly, the, the IgG antibody is a marker for exposure. So if you drink um, milk every single day and eat weed every single day, um, the excess antigen that goes into the circulation gets complexed with usually IgG antibodies and is eliminated from the circulation via cells, um, uh, macrophages, with, without any symptoms being provoked. So indirectly, the IgG gives you a, a picture of the foods to which you have the greatest exposure. And wow. it is possible that you have some sensitization to the feed, foods that you're eating the most of. But the test is not specific, which means it just tells you what you're exposed to, not necessarily that which is producing symptoms. That's very interesting because the IgG proponents would say, well, you've got to rotate your food because all of a sudden these IgG antibodies start increasing, which you say is from exposure. So, of course, they're going to increase. And so they'll interpret that as a food sensitivity? Well, then, yeah, I mean, they want to sell their tests. So, so yes, they do. But, but whenever it's been looked at, actually, and compared with a double-blinded oral challenge, it, it doesn't correlate. So... Um, Tell me about yeah. this double-blinded oral challenge. So uh, you, uh, what, what do they measure? Do they measure anything like heart rate or sh- glucose level, or are they measuring symptoms? What is this gold standard test? Well, um, how you measure it is, well, of course, double-blinded oral challenge means eating the food. Now, it can be uh, placebo-controlled. It, it can be that it's an open challenger or, or a, a blinded challenge with respect to knowing or not knowing what you're eating. But I'll tell you about a study that was done on, on, with uh, my test at the very early days. Um, because we were closely associated with people at the University of Miami, and uh, one of the professors there had a close association with an immunologist in London at that time named Brostoff who was doing a lot of the pioneering work in food sensitivity. 
um, we um, allowed Brostoff to to um, examine our test. And he got together with a colleague who was a clinical pharmacologist and had been the medical director of a company that brought um, uh, a drug called disodium chromoglycate into the U.S., which people know as Intol uh, for asthma. It's a, it's a, a, a drug that stabilizes the membrane of, of inflammatory cells. Um, and what they set up was a very rigorous study to compare ALCAT results with double-blinded challenge, but double-blinded in the sense that neither the person eating the food nor the research nurse that was instructing them on the change in their diet knew whether the food was ALCAT test positive or, or negative. Um, so what and is what, a, a positive result in the gold standard where you've got this double-blinded oral challenge meeting, they're eating food and they don't know what they're eating and the, and the providers don't know who's eating what. So what is a positive result? I mean, a GI symptom or do they measure something like glucose levels or heart rate? Well, that's a good question. I was getting to that. They, they look at symptoms. Okay. Now, this, now, if you're dealing in, in this particular population, they selected people who had various symptoms. So they would look at the symptoms for that patient. Um, during baseline and uh, after each challenge. And each challenge was only instituted once a week, so they only add a food once every week, and then they would disregard the clinical evaluation or change in symptom score for that patient only during the last three days of the week so as to mitigate the carryover because the effects can be delayed, as we were discussing before. And so if the person was asthmatic and their asthmatic got better um, when they added a food that, or didn't get worse when they added a food that was test negative, that was considered a true correlation. If, if they added a, a test positive food, and again, they, because of the blinding, they only determined that after the fact, and the asthma kicked up, then they would say, well, the test was correct. In predicting so that there is a sense compared to when the do- doctor sticks a little bit of the stuff in you, they stick the needle in to see if you come up with a welt. How does it compare with that test? Well, if, if, it depends how far you stick the needle in. If um, it's a, it's um, traditional to use the scratch testing, where you place a drop of allergen on the skin and scratch it, and if there's a wheel and a flare, that's because um, uh, tissue. Um, Mast cells release histamine and cause that little induration there. Um, that's a good test for allergy. But the oh, cells, but not for delayed sensitivity. No. It oh, doesn't okay. work because there are different... I only alluded to it cursorily before, but um, delayed-type sensitivities are mediated by different pathways, and there are different immune cells involved, and they're not found there on the surface of the skin. So let's get the listener, you know, a, a little bit away from the scientific stuff, which some of us love. But let's tell them what uh, food sensitivity does to their health and why it's important. Why, why are we focused on knowing what foods we're sensitive to? Well, um, for, for lots of reasons. They, they uh, can establish an ongoing chronic state of inflammation that can... Um, attack different parts of the body, as we discussed, such as the joints, um, the, 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 the respiratory system, the GI system, the, the skin, the central nervous system. 
Um, so if you have the, or they can also disrupt uh, metabolic function. For example, when the um, immune cells react to a food, mistaking it for a pathogen, and they do this on a chronic basis, they re- release chemicals such as tumor necrosis factor alpha and interleukin-6 that will actually block insulin receptors on the muscle cells and, and the neurons. And so you don't get the sugar coming into the cell for wow. metabolism uh, uh, normally. I think it's stored as fat. So there's a whole number of different type of clinical adverse consequences from eating foods that um, inappropriately activate the immune system. Now, also over time, uh, it's recently been shown that the cells that are involved in reacting to these foods um, have a whole sort of repertoire of um, uh, types of um, activities that they can use to neutralize what are, what's perceived as being dangerous to the body. And one of these is uh, something fairly recently discovered, a process whereby the, 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 the cell um, contents inside the cytosol and also inside the nucleus kind of meld together. And even after the cell is dead, they extend out these long kind of traps. In fact, that's what they call them. If it's a neutrophil, they call it nets or neutrophil extension traps or if it's macrophages, they call them METs, macrophage extension traps. And they actually trap pathogens outside the cell even after the cell is dead. Now, what's contained in these traps is kind of interesting. There's nuclear material, and that includes DNA, which has now been fragmented. And that is toxic to these pathogens, and that's why the body does this. Now, that's fine if that happens, if then the body has enough and a well-functioning enzyme system, which is is comprised of DNAs, to break down and get rid of all these DNA fragments and other debris. If not, then that triggers autoimmunity. So that's kind of a nuance that's fairly recently discovered. And one of the things that's been discovered, um, again, fairly recently is that, um, you know, we like to cooperate with uh, science people. You know, I come from a very holistic background. I believe very much in eating um, myself, vegetarian and organic and good quality food that's compatible for you and eating in season and so forth. But when it comes to carrying out this test, we like to collaborate with science and demonstrate its scientific merit. So we collaborated with Yale, and one of the things they did was a clinical study, but also they did a very technical laboratory-based study and looked at carefully what happens inside the cells um, when we have a positive ALKAT reaction. And one of the things they saw was that there was an increase of uh, DNA fragments outside the cells following a positive uh, exposure to an ALKAT test positive food. So that would explain why um, foods can trigger this aberrant immune response and can in turn trigger autoimmunity or autoimmune-like symptoms where we have 
if not if, frank autoimmunity, where our immune system begins to uh, attack it, the body, but autoinflammation, where there's a lot of um, uh, toxic chemicals being released from these cells and free radicals and causing damage to different parts of the body. Aren't other, I mean, other theories of the autoimmune chain is, uh, obviously, if you've got a sensitivity to food, it can uh, cause a, the new term is leaky gut or permeable intestines, and things can kind of go out into the system, and you get these antibodies, and they go after that, and then through molecular mimicry, they mistake a body part for the protein it's going after, and that can set off a chain of autoimmunity, inflammation, and every disease process imaginable. So is that another pathway in addition to the one you're describing? I think there, there can be overlap there because, um, it, you know, it, it does get very complicated when, when you realize that, and I think you raised a good point, first of all, um, 70 to 80% of the immune system is in the gut. And the gut has a lumen where the food comes through, but the gut is also the home to um, approximately 100 trillion different uh, microorganisms. And the gut has only a single monolayer of endothelial cells uh, separating the inside of the gut from the outside of the gut, but interspersed there are other cells that produce mucus, and so we have a mucus coating inside. And then we have certain antibodies that are protective, not IgG, but IgA antibodies that trap um, uh, food particles that are too big and, and prevent stuff that shouldn't come into the circulation from doing so. And we, we call that barrier function or um, intestinal permeability. And it is very complex, and certain foods have been shown to, and certain other factors, but foods like gluten have been shown to cause the opening of the tight junctures and a decrease in intestinal barrier function. And the egress... I'm sorry? ...up to a break right now. So we're going into that tight junction of a break, and then we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that nearly a third of Americans have made us the number one country in obesity rates in the world? It's true. It's time for Right Choices. Tune in every week for the show that aims to make you healthier. You don't need a lot of time, money, or even need to travel far. Host Dietrich Wright will show you what you can do easily to be more fit, healthier, have more energy, and live a better life overall. Be sure to make us a part of your weekend every Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. 
Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Occupy Health. Dr. Susan with Roger Deutsch. And he's telling us all about a test that he has been working with called the ALCAT that helps us assess whether we've got food sensitivities or not. There are many uh, different tests out there, and the other ones that are based on other technologies, he's saying that might not be accurate. They just might show exposure rather than if these foods are jacking up our system and causing problems. So that's very interesting. And he's also discussing the gut and the importance of the barrier protection to keep uh, the right foods inside and not let the proteins out into the blood system. So, okay. So um, can you have a food sensitivity if you've never eaten the food? You can. That's that's one of the things that really surprises people. Um, And, again, trying to avoid the technicalities, but there's basically two branches of the immune system. One's called the specific immune system or adaptive immune system. And um, the other is called the innate immune system. And um, they, of course, coordinate with one another and there's overlap. Um, But the innate immune system is the first line of defense. Now, for specific immunity, um, you require sensitization, which comes through prior exposure. For uh, innate immune responses, which underlie food sensitivities and the delayed reactions, you actually don't. And I can tell you kind of a, an interesting story. Many, many years ago, um, when we first started to work with the late Robert Atkins of the Atkins Diet um, Program, um, he, he sent us patients, and then he called me after a while, and he said, you know, Roger, uh, I've got a problem with your test. I'm not sure it works. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, all of the Jewish children um, that I'm testing turn out to be reactive on your test to pork. And I pointed out to him, well, look, with the innate immune response, you can have a reaction on first exposure. That's why it's called innate uh, immunity. And, um, you know, maybe there's some reason that, um, that the um, various religious traditions like Hindu, um, sorry, uh, uh, Judaism and Islam um, proscribe uh, eating pork. And it's not surprising then that uh, some uh, Jewish children who've never had pork will show up on the test right away. And one of the other interesting things about pork, and coming back to your comment a few moments ago about antigenic mimicry, 
is kind of interesting. Um, when when um, they first started to look at transplanting heart valves um, from uh, from other species into humans, they looked at um, porcine or or pork heart valves. Um, why? Because um, they're close to human beings in terms of molecular makeup. Now, it's kind of interesting when you think about that in terms of the theory that you mentioned, which I think is quite accurate and does overlap with what I was speaking about also, is that um, when something is very similar to our own tissue, but not quite, it might be sufficiently different that the immune system recognizes it as being foreign and dangerous and attacks it. And then we get this phenomenon of spreading or antigenic mimicry where our own tissue is close enough to it. It's not perfectly close to it. It's, it's different enough to initiate an immune response, but close enough that the immune response may also attack our own tissue and cause autoimmunity. And that may, in fact, be why some of these religions um, state don't eat pork. That is very interesting. I've got a question. I mean, many nutritionists say to rotate our diet. Now, obviously, one good reason for that is to get a variety of uh, vitamins and good substances. But they also say that you need to rotate your diet so you don't develop food sensitivities. What do you think about that? I think for many people, that's absolutely correct. And here's, here's the reason. Well, what we found, and again, um, doing some work later on with these people in uh, London and Oxford who were um, both allergists and pharmacologists, was that we found that people have reactions to chemicals that naturally occur in foods or may be added, but we looked particularly at these chemicals that are very small molecules that naturally occur in foods, and they can trigger uh, food sensitivities. They're too small molecularly to, to generate an antibody response. So they're creating an, um, a sensitivity via what we would call a pharmacologic or drug-like um, pathway. So now all foods, <clears throat> or let's put it this way, all plants, all vegetables, all fruits, they, they all contain Toxins. Why? They contain toxins to protect themselves from pests. So now if we've grown up in an, uh, in an area and we've lived up until recently the way we, for the most part, have, in the same place, eating the same food for perhaps hundreds or thousands of generations, we've adapted to the toxins in the plant foods that, that we consume. But... Um, when we start introducing foreign toxins or if we overload the detoxification pathway, a particular pathway, then the innate immune system kicks in. So that's one of the things that, again, is different about food sensitivity and allergy. With allergy, you might have a ragweed allergy, as I did, and you might inhale over the course of an entire season a teaspoonful of ragweed pollen, and that's enough to make you miserable for, for months, day and night. But with food, just think about how much food we consume. Now, 
if we detox the chemicals that are in the foods without there being any uh, reaction, that's fine. We don't notice anything. We don't know that there's a toxin in there. And we just extract from it the beneficial um, factors. But if for some reason um, we have too much of one thing and we overload a particular detoxification pathway, and this is genetic, then we have a toxin in our blood and then the innate immune system kicks in. So how do you avoid that? Just rotate, as you said. There's wisdom in it. Okay. This is fascinating. So I want to keep reminding the listener that these food sensitivities are very important because they set off a chain reaction, autoimmune conditions, and set us on the pathway to many chronic dis- uh, diseases. So that's why we're talking about this. So so what are some of the most common food sensitivities that people have? Good question. I get that question all the time. And... Whereas it used to be believed that the most common offenders were egg, um, soy, citrus, uh, dairy, and wheat, um, and that is true to a certain extent, we have population health and we have individual health, and any individual can be reactive to anything. I'll I'll give you an example. Um, I started to notice that I was testing positive to two fairly unusual foods that you wouldn't suspect. They're certainly not on that um, most wanted suspects list. Uh, Cucumber and basil. And I just thought, well, that's curious. Cucumber and basil keeps coming up. So I I would just avoid them. But then one time I I went, um, uh, grabbed, uh, I I had to get back to work quickly, and I I was hungry, so I grabbed a a wrap and and a veggie juice at a local place. I asked them, Leave out the cucumbers. Well, I got back to my desk, and I was involved in a project, and I had this wrap and veggie juice on my desk. And I recall glancing over at the veggie juice and thinking, that looks a little bit too translucent to not have any cucumber in it. But I I didn't really pay much attention. I drank it anyway. And in the middle of the night, I woke up with the most intense intestinal spasm that I've ever had. So there's some chemical. I'm not sure what it is. I know one other person that I've spoken with has the same problem. Something there induces this intense um, spasm in my intestine. So it's a a chemical. It's something um, that I don't detoxify properly. It's genetic. Um, With basil, I also have a a reaction, but it's different. Um, I don't eat basil, but if I had it by mistake which I, I did one time a few months ago, and I, I, I told my girlfriend, gee, I don't feel good. And she goes, yeah, I, did, I didn't want to tell you that dish had basil in it. I get uh, bronchoconstriction, and I just feel fatigued and kind of achy and all that. So there's a different chemical, which for me causes a different kind of a result. So the message is, the simple answer is, there's, there's no way to predict. It can be anything, and it oftentimes is something totally unexpected. So are these lifelong because if there's something in your system that you can't detoxify the cucumber, which sounds like it might be genetic, it sounds like uh, cucumbers and basil are off your table forever? No Greek salads? Um, Yeah, I've kept them off, and um, I haven't tried. But some of these sensitivities actually are forever, and some of them are not. Um, Now, think about it. One of the things that drives the detoxification 
um, capability of the body are these pathways, uh, cytochrome P450 pathways, and they rely upon certain micronutrients as cofactors. And if you're absorbing nutrition well, uh, your, your gut's functioning well, and your diet is um, uh, replete with adequate nutrition, and you're not overstressed, you're not leaking out nutrients through stress or injury or infection or, or maybe even pregnancy, um, then the detoxification pathways function better. Um, but then if you kind of get depleted, overstressed, and so forth, um, you have... Stress is one factor besides factors like gluten. Um, stress produces cortisol, which can cause intestinal permeability. And you get more of that leaky gut-induced bombardment of stuff, not just food, but also uh, bacteria. Remember, we have about 100 trillion <laughs> bacterial and fungal species um, and protozoan species uh, residing in our gut. And it and, and some of them are good. Most of them are good. Um, but we could have some bad ones. We could have a lot of bad ones. We could have a dysbiosis. And um, increased intestinal permeability can allow not only undigested food particles to leak through into the circulation where the immune system is called into action, but also um, microbes that shouldn't be there either. And then you have this hyperreactive uh, uh, state of immunity, and then, and then you're just more sensitized. So, so on your test, can you tell which ones you need to stay away from forever versus this might be temporary because my gut's not healthy? When I took your test, there were, you know, different gradations. Some of them I had to avoid for a while, but green beans I had to avoid forever, and I never ate many of them. So mm-hmm. can your test differentiate which <clears throat> ones that you need to stay away from forever? No, we haven't figured, no. It, we, we just know um, that at this time, your, your immune system's reacting to the, that food or that chemical or that herb, whatever we're testing. Um, but we don't know whether or not you will be able to tolerate it again later on um, in moderation. It's only through trial and error or retesting that we can determine that. Or you so can, can healthy that. foods cause? Can healthy organic foods cause this? It sounds like it can, because you know the sure. cucumber might have something that just doesn't react well with you. Courses for horses. Yeah, we're all, we're all individuals. Quite often, people are shocked that they're eating kale and broccoli and spinach and carrots and you know whole grains and and so on and so forth. And they're avoiding dairy, and um, and they think that that's the ideal diet, and they still have problems, and it's one of those items. But <clears throat> on the flip side, what's you know um, today, I'm sure you, you're you're well aware of this. I don't know how much the listeners are aware of it. It's the science of epigenetics. So we have the um, genes which could predispose us towards a per- certain sensitivity or certain tolerance. But those genes can be modified by lifestyle factors, including diet, including environmental exposures, including psychological factors that either um, cause those genes to not be expressed or to be expressed more. And one of the interesting things that's come up recently is the um, uh, understanding that milk, now mother's milk and also um, farm milk, raw milk, 
actually cause specific modifications to the gene to the genes in an area which promotes the maturation of a certain kind of white blood cell that produces a chemical which is very profoundly beneficial and anti-inflammatory called IL-10. So I mention that because many people think that, well, dairy is one of the common things you have to stay away from. Well, it really depends on the kind of dairy, and and that drives drives home an important point, um, which I'll come to. Um, Farm milk prevents allergy. Mother's milk prevents allergy. So, you know, the milk we buy in the store, well, you know, certainly organic grass-fed is much better, but uh, the raw milk is actually beneficial in terms of preventing allergy. What about the role of gluten? Gluten is a very interesting molecule. Of course, people know they've heard about gluten over and over. It's in wheat, rye, barley. There's a form of gluten that's in spelt, but it has fewer carbon bonds. It's a little bit more digestible. It's got a certain um, chemical composition. It has a lot of proline and glutamine residues, which means it's, it's virtually impossible to digest. And it binds with receptors on the enterocytes that are the single monolayer of, of cells lining our um, gut. Um, and it causes um, release of a chemical that's been called zonulin that causes the opening of the tight junctures. Very interesting. And, Many speakers have said that gluten is something we can't digest and it's going to open the zonulin, which means our intestines will be leaking all over the place and setting off this chain of autoimmune disease. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Gluten sensitivity. You see, there's, there's gluten sensitivity, and you get the gluten coming through, and it's a big molecule, and it's immunogenic, and then it, it, it can cause the uh, very aggressive T lymphocytes to start attacking the enterocytes, and they release an enzyme called tissue transglutaminase, and then you get a second round in this vicious cycle. The tissue transglutaminase, or TTG, binds with the gluten fragments, and that becomes more immunogenic. Now, then, if you, this only happens if you have the wrong genes, then it gets to the point where these T cells get involved and become very aggressive. So you can have gluten sensitivity. Can we still eat gluten? If we've got the right genes, can we, some of us, eat gluten? You, You can. You can have... You see, that's the thing. There, there's a lot of debate here, and it pendulum swing um, alternatively. Um, you have to try. Um, if you have the genes for celiac disease, you cannot eat gluten. Celiac disease is too serious. And it's easy enough in lots of labs. My lab does it, and lots of labs will test for those genes which are specific to um, celiac disease sensitivity. Um, but there is a phenomenon where if you don't have the genes and you don't have the risk of celiac disease, you could still have a sensitivity. And a lot of people have gluten sensitivity. Um, but you which, said which, it was hard to digest, so, uh, so let's eliminate those that are celiac and those that are gluten sensitive. Is it, it sounds like it's causing a problem for everybody because we can't digest it that binds to our intestine uh, leading to a permeable intestine. So it sounds like nobody yeah. should be eating it, or are there, a few, are there a couple blessed few that can? That's a very interesting question. I think the 
there's probably, according to the theory, which what you just related is exactly what the theory is, that gluten binds with the CCXR receptors on gerocytes and opens by junctures. Does it do that 100% of the time? It doesn't seem to be the case because some people can eat gluten. It's interesting. Um, um, some people I know, myself included, um, when I go to India and I stay in this small village and we eat um, uh, chapatis, which is an Indian bread made from the wo- local wheat, we don't have any problem. Well, it's a different kind of wheat. It's not as processed as ours is. It's not as processed, but it still has gluten. So it, it raises questions that we don't actually have scientific answers for fully yet. And the problem yet. Is, is we don't know who's who. Is there any way, any physical symptoms? Because some people say after you eat something you're sensitive to, your heart rate will go up, your glucose level will go up. And there are people, I believe, in Israel that are studying that. But are, is there any yeah. way that we can get a sense without going to a lab? Um, yeah, you, you just have to, you know, I, I, you can't do it for all the foods that are in your diet, but you can do it for things like gluten and dairy. Um, just go off it for two weeks. See how you feel. That's Some of us have those <laughs> symptoms and we can't tell. Well, if you can't tell, like celiac, you raise a good point. Celiac can be progressing and you, do, and you don't know it. And it's a serious disease, so you, you, you would want to know about that. But that's a simple gene test. But tip, tip, putting that aside, if you're eating, if, if you go off of a food for two weeks, you don't feel any better, then I wouldn't worry about it. Now, what is the connection between food allergies and obesity? And, I, and I, from your book, you're connecting food allergy as a major culprit in many conditions, including tension deficit, infertility, uh, asthma, skin conditions, cellulite, fatigue, migraine, pain, arthritis, uh, it's and addictions, various addictions. So tell us about how these fit into these conditions, especially into obesity. Right. Well, um, when, when you have a food sensitivity, um, and again, not an antibody phenomenon because that's just an antibody, but if the cell actually, and remember, it's the cells that are the simplest unit of the body, and they produce the chemicals that defend the body, the toxic mediators like the histamine and interferons and and tumor necrosis factor alpha and so forth and various interleukins. Um, Certain of these chemicals will actually interfere with um, um, insulin activity, so you can't get um, the, 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 the broken down sugars from the foods into the cells to, to, for, for fuel, and they get stored as fat. Um, interestingly, it's been shown that um, it's very, very complex, but when you have the breakdown of the cell, which, uh, see, in the LCAT test, we take your blood, we put it in a test well. Of course, we dilute it and, 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 and put in some buffer, and we put it in a test well with a food, Oh, uh, maybe 200 foods. Um, and then other times we put your blood in to a test well with no food. And we put it through an analyzer and we look at the size distribution curve of the white blood cell population. These are the immune cells. Now, how do we know that there's a reaction? Is that the blood cells actually um, 
using a non-technical term, they, they, they explode. They're trying to defend or neutralize this particle, and actually these cells go through a process called degranulation. And the cells become necrotic, and then we may even have the progression onto that netosis sort of thing. But what happens is that toxic chemicals come out into the circulation, and they cause tissue damage, and other uh, molecules um, are produced called free radicals that destabilize um, pathogens, uh, and that's a defense mechanism, but they also cause tissue damage. So where does the tissue damage occur? Well, these neutrophils, they can go to any part of the body. They actually leave the blood system and go out into the tissue if there's something that is sensed to be wrong. So they can go to any part of the body and produce an inflammatory response. But more subtle than that, you get disruption in the function of these cells and you get a cascade of inflammation. But this is also impacted by many factors. A major one is the interaction of your immune system with your gut microbiome. Coming to a close now, and so what I've read in your book is that you've had many success stories with every one of these conditions mentioned after there's a test to find out what the particular food sensitivities are and then going, of course, of course a logical progress of uh, keeping away from that food and trying to look at the underlying cause. So in our about two minutes left, do you want, could you please summarize and tell people how to get a hold of you? Right. Um, we have a very simple telephone number called um, 800-GET-TESTED. Um, so people can phone us or go online. We have um, a website, alcat.com, which is the name of the technology, A-L-C-A-T, and also Cell Science Systems, www.cellsciencesystems.com. Take-home points for the listeners? Take-home points. The biggest thing that I found in life, now I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. Mr. Elcat. I'm known for that around the world. The biggest thing that I think is the most important thing in life is to be a nice person because it does so much for the internal emotional state and the psychological state that everything else seems a lot easier and everything seems to fall into place. Then, of course, use your common sense. Um, it's simple. Uh, you run into problems. There's a lot of good integrative healthcare practitioners. If you've run into a serious problem that needs immediate attention, you, you go to a conventional medical practitioner. Hopefully find one that's good, that cares about you, that's sympathetic, that's knowledgeable. And you integrate those. So now, so that's very good advice. You go to your practitioner, do your research, uh, find out about these things so you can help yourself and others, and be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.